Everybody else will run to the work of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, where we have the most devastating language in the Bible for cultural Christians, for, well, we go to church because that's what we do, for legalistic Christians who live like life is a game, that they're scoring points by keeping the rules, the most devastating language in the world for, I like Jesus, fine, it's okay, but uh, you know, I mean, let's not go overboard with all the, you know, religion, all the, it devastates that as any kind of Christian notion in Philippians 1:21 by making this awesome declaration that, uh, sometimes you and I rise to the occasion and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're grumble and complain and feel sorry for ourselves. Sometimes we think it's about us and forget that no, we are about God. It's not about us. It's about him. Philippians 1.21 is a proclamation that uh, Paul says in chains and under suffering in answer to the question of the Philippians, how are you? And uh, we're concerned for you and we love you. And here's an offering to support the ministry. What news can we get of you, Paul? How are you now? Paul says what you and I must choose to say. Don't waste your life. But say with Paul, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I think this may be the best little motto for every single day of your life in the scriptures. Why? Because it takes into account many things. It takes into account on the one side, your life, how you're doing, what's going on in your day to day. Is it about Jesus Christ? If not, it's you're wasting time. You only get so much. And we'll see part of what you get is so much time to suffer. But the other side is to die is gain. And now we've taken into account the worst part of life, the most awful part of life, whether you die fast, excruciating in a quick moment of death, or if you die slowly, as most people do through age and the, the, the degradation of the earthly tent. However it is that you die, it's the worst news that we can think about. But for Paul, it's gain. And that is an attitude that will steal you against fear. That what am I afraid of what man can do to me if I am in the care of the Lord Jesus Christ? And for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now that's not an attractive message to people that are distracted by the passing interests of the world. We read in 1 John chapter 2 that we've got a problem with the world and it has to do with our attention. Let me pull it up real quick in my analog Bible. 1 John chapter 2. In verse 15, the apostle of love, the one who says agapao and agape more than anyone else, the one who has it as this more of a center of his theological presentation than anyone else, the one who told you, for God so loved the world, agapao, he gave his only begotten son, tells you in 1 John 2, 15, do not agapao the world, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. Now, wait a second. We love Jesus and he's got the whole world in his hands. I mean, didn't we sing that as little kids? We love the world. 
Well, he's talking about Satan's system of deception and distraction, which has deceived the nations. It's the lies that are mixed in, marbled in with the truth that if you eat it, you end up poisoned. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, that is your love for the Father, is not in him. You don't love God if you love the world. That's what that means. And by the way, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. And the love you're supposed to love God with is God, the Holy Spirit's empowered love. It's a divine love. You don't have God's love that is due to him if you love the world. For all that is in the world, let me summarize. What, is he talking about all those people that we're to love with the gospel? No, he's talking about the system of deception that has them in chains. Don't join them in their chains. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, this is what occurs to us without any outside pressure, just the temptation we have from our sinful nature. It doesn't just mean sex, but sex is a great illustration. The, the lustful side where God's good blessing of marriage is turned into a curse. The lust of the eyes. This is where something grabs you and you can see it and want it because you can see it. And the boastful pride of life where all the joy and hope is laid on your goal for advancing yourself. Self-glorification. It's all part of what the, the flesh wants. But the world is serving it up. What do you do with that? It's not from the Father, but from the world. All this in the world is not from the Father, it's from the world. The world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And this, beloved, is a great wake-up call that we probably need to have all the time. Don't love the world or the things that are in the world. And Paul says it this way, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it is... A stark and startling declaration that will change your life. If you do a couple things, most Christians hear that for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Most believers, I'm gonna start moving because y'all are sleeping on me. It's, it's that whatever grape juice product. Um, most Christians are gonna take uh, for me to live as Christ, die as gain and do the first step and is to say, I, I'm out, I, I can't, I don't, that's not where I am. Most Christians start there. All Christians are there at, at, from time to time if they're honest about it. You say it and you're like, oh, for me to live is Christ and die is gain, but I'm worried about this thing or that thing. And, and these don't connect to Christ, and so I'm not thinking that way. Well, that's the first step is to say, here's what the scripture says, and here's where I am, and I don't measure up. That's just the first step. The next step is to say, but it should be this way. And that is the correction of the word of God on our hearts. I don't think feel want this, but God wants me to. And I watch for it should. It's not a guilt trip. It's just I'm obligated. There's a responsibility and should get you off the sofa, should get you to work, should get you to work on time, should get you to take care of the kids when you don't feel like it, should get you to train them. Even though you've been working and working, and working, I have to go home and work should takes you out of lazy and puts you into productive. And that's not guilt. That's the sense of obligation. And that's what the word of God does for you. And the world has this word guilt that they throw at you. And oh, I have, I have religious guilt because, you know, I was taught the Bible and I saw the difference and I didn't measure up. So I felt guilty about it. No, you felt that you were not measuring up to the standard. That's a legitimate sense of guilt. We're not talking about some sort of 
manipulation where you destroy your soul in despair because you don't measure up. You say, I am not choosing to measure up. I don't feel like I'm measuring up or like I should. And what I choose to do is say, okay, Father, you want me to say to live as Christ, to die as gain? I need help. And that's step three, is you humble yourself before God and you ask him for what he has asked you to do. You've said to love, help me love. You've said to be about the mission of the gospel. I, I don't know how. I don't know what that looks like. And I frankly don't feel like it. Good, tell the truth, but do it in hope because you're asking for wisdom. And if you ask for wisdom, expecting God to give since he promised he would, wait for it, he's going to provide. One of the great theological stories in church history is Augustine and Pelagius. Augustine was famous in his early ministry as a Christian for saying something actually very helpful. God, there was a prayer people started quoting as a motto, God, what you have commanded, provide. He didn't say it in English. He said it in Latin. What you have commanded, provide. Yes. All through the prayers in the scriptures, we see Paul asking for God to do in us what he's commanded for us to do. Yes, good theology. Pelagius didn't like it. Oh, 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 wait, this is... And then it became a very strange argument about man's free will and God's sovereignty. I don't think that's where the phrase lives. God commands it. We are now responsible for it. God has to supply. And so I started with, for me to live as Christ, die as gain. I see the difference and acknowledge I'm not there. I don't want that. I then choose to say, I need to change. That's a change of mind and say, I don't think, feel, want this, but God has told me to. So now I'm responsible. And then I'm personally connecting to my father and saying, I need this change. This is just a personal relationship with God and his word. This is what you do with every line of scripture that lays an obligation on you. And you say, I, I, I'm not there. And you're not trying to look around and say, well, who can make me a super Christian? You have the Holy Spirit living in you and you have the apostles words that he's using to bring forth a difference in your conscience, a difference in your wants. And then as you ask God to provide, you start walking in faith. And you find that I choose, I choose that for me to live as Christ. And now I am making choices about being in the word, about constant prayer, about what the scriptures provide in what I call the blank check. All the commands of God for you are a blank check of blessing. They are God saying, here is a treasure chest of infinite riches if you want it. And on the treasure chest is a label. And that label says the imperatives that God commands us to walk, it's a long label. The imperatives that God commands of us that he enables through his spirit for us to obey. That's where the riches are. And it is not, it is not legalism. It is not you do the thing and then God gives you the pay. And so you're, you're, you're trying to rack up skee-ball tickets for eternity. That's not the attitude because we have a relationship with God and loving him. John 14 is obeying him. So for me to live as Christ and die as gain. I want to preach 30 sermons 
on for me to live as Christ and die as gain. But we'll continue. If I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And because I'm convinced that I have this relationship with you, that my life here is for your advance, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you and all you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that your proud confidence or your boast in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. That you can glorify God and proclaim your gratitude to God. And you can tell others what God is doing in the sense that he provide another opportunity for face-to-face Pauline instruction. Whoa, what, what a joy it would be to hear Paul preach and hear what the Corinthians are griping about. Well, you know, he's strong in letter, but he's weak in person. Not very impressive, not very impressive at all. You know, if, if I were God, I would have picked somebody more, more appropriate in their voice and their diction and the way they, I mean, if you just look at Paul, you can't even, you have to look away because there's something going on with his eyes. Just, uh. but, but these other guys in Corinth, boy, they've got it down. They are smooth operators. And Paul, he's just, he wants to teach, 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 and it's just, it's withering. I think part of what's going on in Corinth, by the way, on that, what, what happens in church, uh, churchianity today, I think there's always an inherent laziness. We don't want to look at it, but we're not willing to do the thing that God's asking us to do. So I, don't, I don't want to dig, dig down. I don't want to sink into the word and get some depth. I don't want to change. So since I, I'm, I'm hesitant or resistant about the change that would be required for me to grow enough to sink into the riches of God's word, what I'll do is come up with some excuse, like uh, Paul is, he's too weak in person, or, or uh, his letters are hard to understand, not way, the way Peter says, but the Corinthians is too hard. Or, it, it can't be that complicated is the way here today. You, you, too much teaching, not enough you know, stories. Let me tell you a story. Um, we have started here with the highest literacy level, with the highest level of abstract thinking in the founding of this country perhaps it's ever had. Highest attainments in connecting moral philosophy to, and scripture really, to governance in its founding. And somehow 244 years after the founding, which was in 1776, and not 1619. Somehow we found a way to say that the freest place in the world that has done the most to combat racism and all the other ills of planet Earth. It is, the, it is anathema to the American founding and its current state to, to embrace slavery. And we have found a way to throw away all that higher understanding, to throw away all the moral philosophy, throw away all the connection to scripture and do our very best to re-enslave ourselves to human government as though, the, the, as though there is no God. That's a story. It starts high and it ends in a tragedy as far as history is concerned. That's, you didn't want me to tell you that story. Well, back to the word. <laughs> We don't want to hear from Paul. We don't want to hear the depth. We don't want to think and we don't want to concentrate and we definitely don't want to change 
because that would mean that my arrogance has to be, uh, be seen for what it is, that I'm not there, but I think I am. I'm not all that, but my pride says that I am all that. And so every word of scripture is calling me to repent, to change my thinking and adjust to God's thinking. And I don't want to do that. I want to be my own person. I want to be the captain of my soul. And so the apostle Paul um, is phenomenal. And he has as his priority, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he calls us to that. And I'm not trying to preach a Corinthian sermon out of Philippians. I just want you to see that when you read the scriptures and see a contrast for me to live as Christ and die as gain, any excuse you put up where you say, well, this is why I'm not like that. You need to see that excuse for the lie that Satan is telling you that it is. Well, I'm not an apostle. That's not what he's talking about. Well, I mean, I'm not called to preach. That's not what he's talking about. Well, I mean, I mean, that's for super Christians. No, that's for believers in Jesus Christ. And it becomes an example for all of us. So bust open the treasure chest, disregard that story I told you. It's really not your Christian life. It is the environment in which your Christian life is proceeding. You can share Christ in slavery. You can share Christ in prison. You can share Christ as the darkness overwhelms the culture. The light shines brighter in the darkness. We're not here to build the kingdom. We are here to recruit those who will rule with Christ in his coming kingdom. And we are not going to set up that kingdom. Jesus Christ is going to set it up with us in resurrection when he comes back in his second advent. And so now with that introduction, let's get to the command. Only worthy of the gospel of Christ, Philippians 1.27, conduct yourselves as citizens conduct yourselves as citizens i'm bringing out the sense of this word polituo from polituma citizenship civic duty from someone with the highest state of roman citizenship would be well understood by the philippians the slaves in the audience would be like he's talking about roman citizenship we are in a far removed caste from roman citizenship and yet paul says rise to the level of the civic responsibility of an aristocrat in the state to which you really belong, the gospel. You are citizens of this coming kingdom and ambassadors for Christ. And that is a high calling with great aristocratic dignity. Now elsewhere, Paul will say we're the scum of the earth. The world thinks we're idiots. PhD in theology, where you really believe the Bible, would be disregarded as a legitimate PhD in theology. Because the goal of academic in the secular world is to prove that God doesn't exist. And if you have high academic achievements and you believe in the scriptures, then you are obviously an idiot. It's the foolishness of, the, of God making foolish the wisdom of the world. But the idea is if you thought like God thinks about the gospel and about the coming kingdom, then you would see your position in Christ as highly exalted because Jesus is exalted at the right hand of the father. And you would see yourself in this light as an aristocrat, an ambassador, a functionary of the coming state. Worthy of the gospel, conduct yourselves as citizens. So that, why? So that whether coming and seeing you or remaining absent, I may hear about you. The following things. To apply this is to tell you to be a Philippian. 
to read it historically is to remind you that he's talking about a personal encounter. He's making travel arrangements, making plans. I want to come and be with you and teach you face to face, which is better for, for you, the gospel, than for me to die under the Roman oppression now and go to heaven. If you're worried about me dying, don't worry. For me to live is Christ and die is gain. But I'm sure I'm going to live because it is for your advance, for your acceleration in the, in the gospel uh, ministry, for the, in the gospel ministry. Now, when I say the gospel, usually you may think, I'm talking about unbelievers who come to understand the good news, the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. That is the gospel. But when we talk about the way you interact with the gospel, you continue to trust in Christ. You continue to reflect on the cross. We proclaim his death and so forth. But you also are communicating. You are sharing who and what Jesus is and what he's done. And I don't mean that everyone is all of a sudden a little cookie cutter preacher and you're all preaching uh, the same sermon in a different part of the town. I don't mean that. I mean that God is developing you spiritually as you grow to fit into the project of sharing Christ with the world and the way he's grooming you to do it. But that's your life. It's your life. So that whether I'm coming and seeing you or remaining absent, I may hear about you, that you're standing firm in one spirit. What follows is the way they're standing firm. And I know that because in the grammar, in the Greek there, standing is the main verb. It's a finite verb, stako, that the next clauses are going to be modifying. He's going to say how they're standing firm. Whether I come to you and I hear the report in your, you know, face to face, or whether I remain absent in prison and I get another, uh, another visit from Epaphroditus with a letter from you. And so we're communicating that way. It's really slow. I mean, we talk about snail mail. That is some really slow mail. Let me hear you're standing firm in one spirit. Now that means that we're at war. That means that there's something to stand firm against, that we're under pressure and we're anchored and we're able to take the force that's being against us. And this passage goes to suffering for Christ's sake. For me to live as Christ for Paul means he's in prison and eventually he will be executed by the Romans. For me to live as Christ means that I'm going to suffer for the sake of my Savior. And so now he, he starts that tone, that theme, by saying, whether I hear you uh, of you in, uh, in person or absent, that you're standing firm. Standing firm, stako, in one spirit. What does that look like? With one soul contending for the faith of the gospel. Spirit and soul are used synonymously here. There's not a lot of anthropology being taught. He's saying you have one spirit or attitude, worldview, that you're holding together that the, that, that the mission of the gospel ministry is my life because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so that now I'm going to stand firm and with one soul, like we're all of one mind, contend for the faith of the gospel, which means we have to know what the gospel is. It means that we have to know what the faith of the gospel is. It means that we have to insist on it against all attacks, all comers. Last hour, I discussed one of the greatest attacks in our time on the faith of the gospel. And it is at the hands of maybe in many cases, brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm talking about the denial of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. This doctrine, I don't care what kind of uh, people, how they come down on Calvinism or Arminianism or uh, the cessation of spiritual gifts, uh, the, the sign gifts like tongues and prophecy, or these kinds of differences that people will have on experience, practice, and especially on doctrine. 
when you come to what Jesus did for you at the cross, if you get something besides he paid for my sins, he suffered the penalty that comes to my sins. I don't pay the penalty. He had to pay the penalty and he bore my sins in his own body on the cross. If you come up with a different answer than the righteousness of God being satisfied by the work of Jesus Christ to pay for my sins, that's called the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That's the way theologians describe it. If you come up with a different answer than the sacrificial work of Christ for your sins, in my understanding, you are denying the cross. Oh, but Jesus is the victor over death. Yes, by paying for my sins and dying for them in my place. Yes, Jesus is the victor through the substitutionary atonement of the cross. Oh, but Jesus has overcome the world. Yes, by dying for our sins on the cross. Because see, in sin, sold out to sin, we are separated from God and helpless. And in the cross, Jesus took the wrath and died in our place. So that now what you do is you go to him for a relationship with God and you trust in him. And so he's the substitute and he took your sins and you trust in him and he gives you his righteousness. And that's Romans. That's the a, a summary of Romans under great attack today with a new perspective on Paul, as they'll say. And these are things that unless you're reading theological journal, journals or um, in, in some cases I found doing a lot of YouTubing, you're probably not aware of a lot of these things. We have a pretty healthy, steady diet here in our church. I teach or if I don't, if I'm not teaching uh, because I'm traveling, then I have someone else teaching. We teach um, a solid Bible expositional message every Wednesday night and twice on Sunday. A pretty steady diet. Okay. I know that some people supplement on the question of supplementing. Most churches give what my brother-in-law at times um, is called a pep talk. They give kind of a little short kind of encouragement message. Very good. Not a lot of depth. Um, and the teaching will be done at another venue. Teaching's done, you know, in the, during the week thing or in the small group or whatever. They, they take the seminary trained guy that knows how to work the scriptures from the Hebrew and Greek. And then they, 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 that guy gives the pep talk. And then the, the, you know, the, the lay people try to teach and they basically read somebody else's stuff. And then they, and so that's the way churches are generally working today. We don't, that's not my philosophy of ministry. I think we need to teach when we get together because that's where the riches are and that's where the meat is. And so I want you to grow maturely and be functional in the gospel ministry. And you're not, if you don't have a, he a healthy diet of the word, but, um, but you know, the church has worked that way. And so people grow through that and it meets the new person where they are. And they're like, Oh, that was good. And then they want some more. And what they do is they go to the bookstore and some pastor of some church wrote a book that's compelling. And then they supplement, they read, you know, what someone else wrote. Oh, great. Read, 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 read. Read, read, read your books. I have lots of books that I could recommend that you read, but I would challenge you that our philosophy of ministry is not pep talk with a possible teaching ministry where you're supplementing with the bookstore. Our philosophy of ministry is to teach and then teach and teach and teach. And if you need to supplement, fine, but I would challenge you to do that after you've actually been taught, after you've studied, after you've gotten some depth in the word. And I, I know it's different. It's counterculture. We're swimming against stream. I don't care. I happen to have an appetite for some depth 
And I want you to have that appetite too, because to me, there's nothing greater than knowing God in his word with how he said what he said. Now, lately, I've been applying as I've been teaching constantly because I want you to be on mission because it's the thrust of what Paul does throughout his letters. He says, whether I'm present or whether I'm absent, I want to hear about you that you're standing firm in one spirit. How? By contending for the gospel with one soul, with one soul contending for the faith of the gospel. So I told you standing firm means there's coming a force against you and you're anchored to the truth and you're able to take the pressure that's coming against you you're rowing against the against the the wind for the wind's contrary and god has you doing that but you're standing firm you're able to take it and you're contending for the faith of the gospel how else not being intimidated in anything by your opponents you're standing firm in one spirit by contending with one soul for the faith of the gospel and you're not the other side of this the negative side is that what's not happening is you're not being intimidated in any way by your opponents. I hate debate. I hate debates, not presidential debates. Those are political um, uh, circuses. Those are, I like a circus. I like a show. I'm not talking about that where ideas aren't really exchanged. We're just trying to score points on each other. Those are, those are fun sometimes. I think they'll be fun this year. But I, I mean, that's not what I mean by debate. I mean, when someone with substance on one view and, and another person come, and they come together and they try to compare views, I hate it. I hate that. And here's why. Because you have this whole body of truth that's complex and you have to summarize it in a short and terse way that gets the entirety of what you need to say in the complexity. I love the complexity. I struggle with the summary. Well, the other guy has his whole complex thing and then he's going to summarize it. And these two ideas have to meet and here's what I, what I struggle with. The truth is the truth, whether you're good at debating. So the guy uh, that's not as good a debater, but has the truth gets beaten by the guy that's, that's consumed with lies. Ken Ham and Bill Nye a couple of years ago, right? One of those two is deceived by your enemy, the devil, and he wants to help other people be deceived. And the other one is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and saying, there is nothing in the data that contradicts what the scriptures say. It's just your worldview that's construing how to read the data that causes you to deny Genesis 1 through 11. That's the message. That's the message of, of the creation people that are, that are gospel-based. And so, so what happens is uh, one is a better debater and the other isn't as good at debate. He's got a different approach, a different method. It's not quite, and it's, and it's, a, it's, a, it's always a risk. And people come away from a debate thinking, well, this idea is right and this idea is wrong. And that's why I hate debate. Because the truth doesn't care about how good a debater you are. It cares about, I mean, God cares about what he said. Here's the other thing. In moments of weakness where we're not trusting in God, where we're not walking in the power that he supplies, we start to think our ideas may not stand up. Here's the truth. You may not know how your ideas compare to the opponent's ideas, but God does. And you don't need to know all the vagaries of how your ideas are contested and challenged by the enemy what you need to know is what god has told you and you know the one you've trusted and yes let the let the opponent come with his attack and then think it through here's an attack that i've heard lately i only recently figured out duh the, the attack is that um one portion of the electorate that votes left is consistently educated and middle class or above 
And the other portion of the electorate that votes consistently right or freedom is uneducated idiots. This is the way they, they break it uh, in, in statistically. Well, college graduates will vote left consistently. And, and the, the, you know, the kids that won't go all the way through a, an advanced education program, they don't. They vote consistently. And so that's proof that the right is for stupid people and the left is for smart people. Okay, so here's what you do with that. The cultural formation in our country and probably all countries is at the point of education. Education, biblically, if you ask how does God say to do school, education, Deuteronomy 6, is the parents training their children. Now, you parents training your children may be using other adults to help you with that, but just remember, it's your job. You, you don't have to homeschool them, but you have to be a homeschooler in, at heart. You have to say, they're my kids, and they need to learn what I want them to learn. So you're not working for Mrs. So-and-so, the math teacher. She's working for you. With me? Oh, no, no. She works for the, for the uh, educational, um, the teacher's uh, uh, union. No. She gets paid from taxes, and you pay those taxes, and that's the economic arrangement of she works for you, but that's your kid, not hers, and you're delegating something that's your responsibility to her. That's my mentality on education. Now, what people do in the culture today, the, the secularists say, no, the culture owns your kids, and the teachers get to say whatever they want, and the kids need to be separated from their parents and what they're teaching them. But I don't think that's a biblical idea at all. The parents are supposed to be training their children, and how you do that, you may use school to do that. You with me? You with me on that? All right. So that's the point of cultural formation. And the way God told Israel to form the culture was you train your children all day, all the time in how their world connects to me. And you teach them to love me and to serve me and to want what I want. And that is how God in Deuteronomy 6 said, teach your children. And that forms your culture. The next generation, if you do your job, they follow what you gave them and actually learn to stand on your shoulders and not go a different path and destroy themselves as the world would have, but they do better than you did in that pursuit of God. Wouldn't that be amazing if we got better generationally? Now, that's cultural formation. So the way we've done it in our secularizing education is we, with our godly perspective, and came, we went to public school and then stayed Christian, put our kids in the school and they're bombarded constantly with separate from God, separate from God, separate from God. And the way they do it is they don't talk about God at all. And if God is mentioned, somebody, one of these, one of these ministers of state, one of these, these I should say, one of these um, priests and priestesses of the secular religion, these teachers, they say, oh, no, 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 we don't talk about that. And they do, they do it in elementary school and they say it like that. When you can't spank kids, you have to be nasty with them. And I hate the way I've seen these, at least here in Connecticut, the way these teachers talk to these kids. Ooh, that's nasty. They get this tone. If you don't line up for the bus, you're gonna miss the bus. Oh my Lord, just whoop them. Don't do that to their souls. But anyway, I, now I've lost everybody. You're like, we don't whoop kids. All right, so what happens is at the cultural level of formation, you're teaching your kids all day that there is no God. And if you do talk about God, the person in authority teaching the morals says that was immoral. You're now punished. I know of one child in this church who was made to, to restricted from recess as an elementary school for talking to a friend about her prayers. Because that's the way the ministers of state, the, 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 I should say the priests of the secular religion work. 
And so that moral formation is now not talking about God. So when moms and dads say, well, you know, we should do this good news club. The kids are like, you can't talk about God in public school. Because that's, that's the way they've been morally trained. And so now the public sphere is no God and private religion is for your individual thing, which by the way means that we're no longer connected. And that's the way the kids are getting shaved off of the body of Christ in the United States for the last probably 100 years. That's why the kids, you put them in the school and they come out and they're like, well, I mean, whatever. Now there's all kinds of factors. Kids want to spread their wings and do their thing. So the mom and dad did this way. I'm going to do that. There's all kinds of things going on, but it didn't help that their moral foundation and their intellectual foundation and really their spiritual foundation was no God all the time. Now, I don't want uh, my kids coming home believing in baptismal regeneration either. I don't want my kids coming home worshiping Allah either. It's culture. I want my kids praising God and worshiping him all the time. So I find, I find teachers that teach them what I want. Now, if you persist in that cultural formation, you don't necessarily learn to think critically. You learn to say what the group says and adopt the group morality. And that's education in America. So as they go pay for further group think and not critical thinking in higher education, they join the collective and they learn this is how we say it and this is what we don't do. And they're not learning critical thinking in college. They're learning to finish and now to carry the, the water for this secular project. And that is why the college graduates vote left and the not college graduates that kept going to church go right. Because freedom is still the issue. Now, if the college kids would study freedom and the declaration and the founding and all the things in history that are actual things, instead of th this pretend story about the destruction of mankind because of America or something, if they learned about how Genesis connects to history and why every historical project is a demonstration of man's sinfulness and man's failure and why the problem of America is the problem of every country. It's the cities where men aggregate together and multiply sin, just like at Babel. If we would learn history and connect it through God's perspective and learn to think critically, then you would have all kinds of college people voting consistently for freedom, for the conservative project of preserving the American liberal ideal of freedom for the individual and not man belonging to his government as the provider and then the dictator. We would, we would get that, but we don't get that. What I've just said is if we were learning to think critically in school and we had some sort of biblical perspective, your college people would consistently vote for freedom. So that's a long way to go to tell you don't swallow the lie along with a little bit of truth or don't a lot of truth and a little lie. You got to think critically and discern. All right, let's get back to the Bible. That was a fun illustration and we're done. We're out of time. Mike told me this morning, the clock is slow, but um, I've been talking fast. I always forget that the communion service is uh, communion plus the message. And so the message is ideally truncated and shorter. But um, pastor, what do you really think about cultural formation? All right, who cares what I think? Here's what Paul thinks. He wants to know that these people are standing firm against the attack of the world. And by the way, one soul that's unified. That's part of how you have strength is you've got a shield wall. You're not just a, a one person standing against the tide. You're together. Like if you heard what I just said about cultural formation, you said, yeah, you know, that's the problem is the kids have been given to the world. Then we all think that together. And now we're strengthened against it. We know the answers as our adult children come back to us and say, how do you believe that? 
Well, honey, it's, it's about building your worldview in Genesis 1 through 11 and then seeing how that connects to everything else. And man is sinful and fallen and he's going to have sinful and fallen government. And, and, and let's look at 20th century history. But anyway, the, uni- the unity results in being able to stand fast for the faith of the gospel and not being in- intimidated in anything by your opponents. And that is courage and that is critical thinking and that is not leaving your feelings aside completely, but it is not building your reasoning on your feelings. It is holding the line for the principles that you believe in. And I believe passion about your feelings, about passionate feelings about your convictions is an essential part of being human. The academic person that's just, you know, very uh, buckly eyed, just talking about principle and not seeming to be passionate about what they believe that may be a technique, but it's really not generally how humans are. Even Buckley is very passionate about what he says, even though he's got a very erudite or had a very erudite delivery of mm-hmm principle. You scratch him a little bit and you find a, you find a raging uh, tiger uh, looking for freedom. All right. So it's not, it's not that you should be uh, intimidated by your opponents. And if you're not, if they say, ah, you idiot, you idiot Christian, you think like you think, and you're taking that and you're standing firm and you're not intimidated, you say, and you bring some scripture, the, the foolishness of God is making foolish the wisdom of the world. Yeah, I, I don't have a clue, but God does. And he's, he saved me through his gospel, right? And so you're not intimidated by your opponents and you're able to even smile as they hate you. For them, it's a sign of destruction. You might be witnessing to people by not being intimidated as they throw their best one-liners at you. But this is a sign you're, you're, you're not being intimidated. It's a sign of deliverance for you. And this is from God. And I have to read this last part because it's the part that hurts. I want to thank the guys that are going to be uh, covering for me next Sunday. You're going to teach us the word in Deuteronomy and, and uh, Joshua and, and uh, James and... Um, but I want you to hear what you're going to get if Paul has his way, if God has his way that Paul taught him. And you're going to be just like him. He says, this is from God because to you it's been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him. You didn't just get to trust him and have eternal life, but now living it, but also to suffer on his behalf. It's a privilege to have to stand against this attack and not be intimidated and to contend for the faith of the gospel. And it's going to hurt on his behalf to suffer with the result that you have the same struggle, which you know to be with me. And now you're here to be with me. This is the ministry of the gospel. Paul had to suffer. They're asking him, how are you, Paul? He's like, it hurts, but for me to live as Christ and die as gain. And this is the work and you're going to be in the same pattern. You're going to have to stand and and you're going to take hits. Don't be afraid. Trust in your father. Trust in his word. Think it through. ICS. ICS. It's an acronym. Christian suffering is inevitable. Christian suffering is inevitable if you're walking like you're supposed to. What does ICS stand for? Inevitable Christian suffering is for the sake of Christ. 
Just accept it. If you're in the pattern, you're going to be like your Savior. Just like Paul was, the Christian life of Paul is Christian suffering for the ministry of the gospel. Jesus suffered the ultimate suffering in the ministry of the gospel. You're going to suffer in the ministry of the gospel. Inevitable Christian suffering is for the sake of Christ. Never forget it. Third, inevitable Christian suffering is for the sake of Christ is because of the ministry of the gospel. This inevitable suffering as a Christian for Christ's sake is in the ministry of the gospel. I get it if you're not interested in the gospel ministry, you've counted the cause and said, I don't wanna pay that freight. You've almost reasoned it through properly. You haven't gone all the way to eternity and seen the real value. You said, this is gonna hurt, true, and so get after it. That's Paul and to the Philippians. Inevitable Christian suffering for the sake of, of Christ is because of the ministry of the gospel. Fourth, this Christian's citizenship is the gospel ministry. When he says conduct yourselves as a citizen, he doesn't mean that you're in the kingdom. He means that you are recruiting for it. And that is the gospel ministry, recruiting those who will serve in the coming kingdom. That's our historical situation. That's what we're doing. Fifth, the gospel ministry is how we connect today to the kingdom, which is coming at the second advent. The kingdom is coming and it does remove the curse from the earth. And you're part of that. And you're going to read about it. My favorite place in Romans eight. And finally, I know finally it is a fight. It's a fight. If you feel like not doing it, that's the fight. You're feeling the fight. If you feel like, uh, it seems a little pretty narrow to say we're all just living for Christ and serving him in the gospel ministry. If you think that's too narrow of a, of a view of what your Christian life is or your life is to be, you're feeling the fight because you haven't connected your kids and your life and your work and your friends and your, your whatever. Well, that would mean I can't bowl with my friends that are unbelievers. No, you go bowling with those unbelievers. You share Christ with them, even if it's just to pray for them silently because you're looking for the opportunity. You're looking in this bowling thing for an opportunity to share Christ. I didn't, I didn't say don't associate with your unbelievers. I said, you don't borrow their bad ideas. You love them looking for an opportunity to share Christ with them. And maybe it's just prayer. I would definitely say start with prayer. It's a fight. And seventh, you be courageous and stand firm in cont contending for Christ. That's the command. A good citizen as a minister of the coming state, as an ambassador for Christ, is courageous in sharing Christ. You be courageous in contending for Christ. And I don't mean obnoxious. You let me be obnoxious up here. I'm obnoxious with you. Don't be obnoxious with people, but don't yield. Oh, that, that's a good point. You know, I mean, it sounds like heavenly child abuse that God would, would punish his son for someone else. I mean, that's, that sounds like cosmic child abuse. I mean, good point. Not a good point. The righteousness of God is what you're missing. God is perfectly righteous and we're not. And that's the issue. We can't have a relationship with him. So God had to provide his son. You be courageous and stand firm in your contending for Christ. Thanks for your attention. I'm sorry I went long. You're in my prayers. You're in my thoughts. The more I study the scriptures with you and I praise God that you've afforded me the opportunity these many years to study the scriptures the way I have. And then to share with you as weak and broken a vessel as I am in communication. It's such an honor to be able to study the word and, and come to these conclusions and then share them with you. This is not how I think about life. It's not how I'm wired. But the rewiring project has been ongoing. 
I didn't come, out, come into this life thinking the whole thing is the gospel ministry. Even as a pastor, even getting started in the ministry, I didn't think that way. Not like I do now. But I've always felt the, the tension. I've always felt the pressure for Paul to say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And the difference between being that way and not being that way as a Christian is choosing it. Father, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know it's a fight. In this fight, Father, we know it matters how we say what we say as much as the thing we say itself. And God, we need the compassion that your son has for the unbelievers, for the lost that he had for us when we were among them. Before we had ever heard the gospel, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. And this is your love. Father, we need this love in us. We are surrounded in our civilization by unbelievers. Many in this time, as far as things have gone, have never even heard the gospel. Almost no one truly knows who Jesus is or what our claim is. And the best they can do is some sort of 30-minute sitcom caricature to know what the claim really is. And the truth is, Father, if we're silenced in, in, in trepidity, if we're frightened by what the world will think or say, we'll lose status among people. If we have these other values, these idols that we cling to, then we will not be on mission. We will not be consistent. We won't be about your business. Not for us, Father. Don't let us waste our lives. Don't let us waste the time you've given us. Let us redeem the time and evaluate our choices, our relationships, our lives, how the situation you have us in connects us to the gospel. Finally, I want to pray for our list, Father, this group of believers, this small band of brothers and sisters in Christ. We have many people that you've sur surrounded us with who don't know your son. We pray for their souls. We pray for their eternal life. We want them to know the joy that we have of our salvation. We want them to have Christ and we cannot give them Christ, but you can use us that you can open doors, Father, to conversations where they can receive your son and benefit from eternal life as we have. Father, let us not be self-righteous in dealing with one another or with unbelievers. Let us be humble, constantly consumed by the grace that you show to us daily, that you don't count our sins against us, but Jesus has taken them away. They're all nailed to the cross. And we deserve your wrath daily but we'll never receive it because Christ has. Let us extend this grace that we constantly receive to others around us. And don't let us be weary of well-doing. Pray for our list, Father. We love them. The love you've given us. We pray that they'll come to know your son and your timing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.